Hello, welcome to the Sentencing Council podcast, Sentencing Explained. My name is Peter McClellan and I am the Chair of the Council. This podcast was recorded on the lands of the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation. We pay our respects to their Elders, past and present, and to all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people listening today. Joining us today is Judge Ellen Skinner, the President of the New South Wales Children's Court. The judge is going to talk about the special rules which apply to children who offend and how the judges approach the sentencing of young people. Welcome, Ellen. Thank you, Peter, for having me. Now, Ellen, uh, you, I think, took up the role of President of the Court sometime last year, is that right? I did. I was appointed as a magistrate in 2009 and I started sitting in the Children's Court in 2017. And last year, from September, I was acting as the President of the Children's Court and then in November was appointed as the President and a Judge of the District Court. How many uh, judicial officers are there in the Children's Court? There are 16 specialist children's magistrates and then we have one magistrate who rotates through from the local court as a three-month training program prior to them starting their country service. And are they based in different parts of the state? How how is it organised? We have some specialist children's courts. So we have children's courts set up at Parramatta, Surrey Hills, Woi Woi, Broadmeadow, Port Kembla and Campbelltown. Uh, And then we have some specialist circuits that run in the Hunter Valley on the mid-north coast, in the Northern Rivers and the Riverina and the Western Circuit. And so Parramatta has got, I think, six courts and Surrey Hills has got four courts and the magistrates rotate between servicing those areas. Now, as I understand it, the work that you do is fundamentally controlled by the uh, act known as the Children Criminal Proceedings Act of 1987. And so we need just to understand some of the fundamentals in that legislation as they affect the work of the court. I think the age of criminal responsibility in this state now is 10 years. Is that right? Yes, that's right. There are many discussions about the age of criminal responsibility in this state and across this nation and across the world. But at the moment, between the ages of 10 and 14, uh, a child can be held criminal for their uh, criminally responsible for their actions once the court has made a determination that they understand that their actions were seriously wrong. So if you're under 10, there's no criminal responsibility for any child. But between 10 and 14, the court may come to the view that the child understood what they were doing sufficiently to warrant a criminal charge. Is that That's right, yeah. But that decision is made by the court, not, for example, by the police. It's made by the court. If, by way of process, if there's an incident that involves a child between the age of 10 and 14, the police would investigate and then make a determination of what action they wanted to take against that child. Within that investigative process, the police have got a scheme called the Protected Admission Scheme, and a child can make an admission for the purpose of having a charge diverted under the Young Offenders Act. The Young Offenders Act provides for, and once a child has made an admission, and this applies to people who are under the age of 18 at the time of an incident, that once they've made an admission, they might be given a police caution or they might be referred to a youth justice conference. The police might then divert them under the Young Offenders Act and we won't see them at court, so it won't be a court decision. If they don't admit the offence, then it might be that the police make a determination to charge them and bring them before the court. Under the Young Offenders Act, there are also warnings that are available for summary offences, and summary offences are offences that carry two years imprisonment or less, and the police can use the warnings as well as a diversion from court. The Young Offenders Act has been established to provide an alternative outcome for young people to 
have them recognise that their actions have consequences and to have them involved in the consequences of their actions so that the police can divert young people to the Young Offenders Act or the court can divert young people to the Young Offenders Act. But at this stage, a young person has to admit an offence before they can access those diversionary processes. So the benefit of dealing with something under the Young Offenders Act is that there's no criminal record. It can make a difference for some people with respect to employment or travel in the future. So if you're diverted, if a young person is diverted under the Young Offenders Act, who has responsibility for imposing any sanction or future obligations in relation to their conduct? It depends on who manages the diversion. If a police officer gives a warning, it's dealt with at the time. If a police... Sorry, it's dealt with at the time at, by at the, the time police? by the police. So the, the police can do what the, to, to the child? For a summary offence, I think they just give them a warning and then indicate that the matter's been dealt with by a warning. And so in some cases, the police or the police person will just administer a warning and the child is free to go. That's right. As I understand it, and I think there will be different delegations within the police for who's capable of making these decisions, right. but from my perspective, the warnings never come to the court. Right. So, and, and the alternative to the police uh, issuing uh, a warning is, is what? Well, I think sometimes it would be an infringement notice that there, or a court attendance notice for those summary offences. Um, so, under the Young Offenders Act, the police may decide to do more than caution, but, but to bring... The child before the court. Is that no, the I think it's a. Sorry to interrupt. I think it's a determination that they make about whether or not to take an action. So the police have enormous discretion in how they respond to incidents involving all people, but particularly with children. And if they see something or have heard of something, they then have to decide what action to take. So whether to take no action, whether to take one of the Young Offenders Act actions, whether to give a child a court attendance notice or to charge them and then whether or not to give bail. So the warning is the lightest touch action for summary offences, offences that carry two years or less, um, where the police decide to take an action and for that action to be the warning. If the police decide to take an action, the Young Offenders Act applies for matters that fall within the Table 2 and Table 1 and summary offences. So standard Table 1 offences would be now we have break and enters, um, steal from person, affray, assault, assault occasioning actual bodily harm. Um, the table two offences would include shoplifting, I think some damage destroy property type offences. Summary offences will use offensive language or offensive conduct in a public place. Um, that those matters can be referred or dealt with under the Young Offenders Act. And once the police exercise their discretion to take an action, they can then say, I would consider charging you with an assault and occasioning actual bodily harm, will you admit the offence? And if you admit the offence, I will then decide to caution you and the child would be coming back to the police station, I think normally two to four weeks later with a support person and get a formal caution or that they might decide to refer them to a youth justice conference. And that is not done with the oversight of the court so that a youth justice conference referral would mean that the charge effectively is referred to youth justice that six or within six or eight weeks they would convene a conference where the child would attend with a support person sometimes they'd attend with a victim sometimes they might attend with a police officer there would be representatives occasionally from a youth service or the PCYC or something and the young person would be asked to confirm that they've admitted their involvement in the offence and to identify different things they could do as a component of an outcome plan 
to try and accept responsibility and compensate for the harm that has been caused through their actions. So this is all activity at the moment uh, or responses that are conducted by the police. That's right. But the police may decide to bring a charge, in which case it ends up before the court. That's right. So, And that charge is prosecuted by the police before the court? Yes. Right. If the police decide not to use the Young Offenders Act, and there will be a range of reasons for that, sometimes it might be that an offence is too serious, that a child might have a significant history, that the child's not admitting the offence or they can't get the people in place to line it up, the police might decide that they would like those proceedings to go before the court. They can decide that by a court attendance notice where they give a child a date and say in the next three to six weeks you will turn up before the court, or they might decide to charge the child and grant them bail or refuse them bail and say you're going to turn up before the court in custody for the court to make a decision about the charge but also about bail. And then the court gets a second go at using the Young Offenders Act where we are able to caution a child or refer them to a youth justice conference. Right. So you, if the, once the matter comes before the court, you have the same range of discretions as the police had initially, but of course you have other powers, which we'll come to in a moment. That's right. There are some caps on it. The police can't refer graffiti matters to the court, uh, to a Young Offenders Act outcome, that graffiti comes to the court first. And... Charges like intimidation and breach AVOs are under a different piece of legislation to the Crimes Act, and at the moment they're not eligible for Young Offenders they Act diversions. The, the court will ask them to enter a plea of guilty or not guilty. Well, then the matter comes, or the 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 charge is brought before the court, and it may be a matter which is falls in the summary jurisdiction of the court, but of course it may also, I assume, be an indictable matter that comes before the Children's Court. Now, can you help those who are listening to understand the difference in your court between a summary matter and an indictable matter? How do you, first of all, treat or deal with the summary matter? I think as a starting point, the, both the Children's Court and the Local Court can be clearing houses to some extent in that every single charge for a child will come before the Children's Court. The determination is we can only finalise some charges and they'll be carved into summary matters, indictable offences, and then serious children's indictable offences. The jurisdiction we cannot finalise are the serious children's indictable offences, and they're offences that carry broadly 25 years or life imprisonment. So that could be murder, murder manslaughter. Um, some of the terrorism offences, the um, serious aggravated sexual assault, wounding with intent to inflict grievous bodily harm. Yeah those types of offences, we will be a committal-type court. So you just operate as a normal local court? Operate, yeah. And then we commit a matter to either the district or Supreme Court, depending on the charge. Sure. Um, what is unique in the Children's Court is that some other very serious offences can be finalised in the Children's Court. So offences like aggravated sexual assault, where the circumstance of aggravation is age, um, robbery in company, aggravated break-and-enters, drug supply, those matters, dangerous driving causing death would be one that we see, unfortunately, more frequently than we'd like to. Those matters can be finalised in the Children's Court. So they're brought... No, they're, well, they're part they're of the court attendance notice. It's never formally indicted. They're in your summary. They just come into our ordinary list. You just walk in, you walk in one day and you open the file and realise that there are a grieving, there's a grieving family waiting for you to sentence and somebody. And you're confined if you choose to um, exercise 
the jurisdiction which allows for imprisonment, we'll call it that at the moment, you're confined to two years. Per offence with a cap of three for an aggregate. So I suppose in looking at our summary and in our indictable offences, the summary quite straightforward. We just deal with them in sentencing and we'll talk about that. With the indictable offences, we do have the capacity to make a determination that the charge could not properly be disposed of in a summary manner and then for those matters to be transferred to the district court for trial or for sentence. Having had a preliminary hearing. Having Well, the problem, maybe I shouldn't say the problem, having had a preliminary hearing is that if there is an indictable offence that's quite serious or the child's got a serious history and they're pleading not guilty, we have to hear all the prosecution evidence before we make a determination about whether it can be disposed of properly in a summary manner. That's the old traditional committal hearing, effectively. It yeah. is. Mm-hmm. Um, so we're still in that process, but then at the point that we're determining whether or not the child should be um, committed to the district court for trial, we have no background information about that child at all. We've only got the prosecution case. Whereas in sentence proceedings where a child's pleaded guilty, if we are of the view that the offence is too serious and that we would be looking at something more substantial than the two-year for one offence or the three-year for multiple offences, we would normally have a background report that might give us some psychological history and educational and family history of the child, which would inform a decision about whether or not it could properly be disposed of by way of a sentence in our jurisdiction. So there's some work for us to do on that, but it means charges are carved up into different categories. The Children's Court has the capacity to finalise more categories than the other courts, but we still are able to identify when there are matters that we do have the power to finalise, but the two-year sentencing restriction means that it would not properly be dealt with before us and we need to transfer it to somewhere else. What sort of offences would fall into that category, potentially? I mean, you've got the serious indictable offences, as we mentioned. What what are the other types of indictable offence that might arise where you would refer it off to the district court? Uh, Sadly, the frequent offences, the aggravated robberies, we're seeing more stabbings, so we'll see the reckless wounding charges. Um, The dangerous drive cause death charges will be one that we need to make a determination about. I think there'll be some drug supply matters. Um, But generally anything that would be determined to be more serious by the community when they're considering how to meet the purposes of punishment. Now, for the purposes of the work that you do, a child, I think, is a person under the age of 18 years. Yes. So we've been talking um, about children, but I think it's uh, possible that an offence may be committed when a person is under 18 years of age, but they're not charged until after they've turned 18. Is that that right? What happens frequently. Yeah. Um, Our jurisdiction is available to people who are under the age of 21 when they're charged with an offence that occurred when they were under the age of 18. But I have was a criminal lawyer before I came to the bench and there are a number of particularly historic child sexual assault matters where there will be people who are prosecuted many, many years later for offences that occurred when they were a child. It's really difficult assessing how to deal with them, recognising that if they'd come before the children's court when they were 13, they would have been dealt with in a very different way than when they're at the district court as a 35-year-old for something that happened many years ago. Um, Yes, I can understand the complexities of all that. Uh, Now, back to um, the summary matters. What are we generally looking at there? What types of offences? The Summary Offences Act... Um, captures those use offensive language um, 
anything like trespass is part of the Enclosed Lands Act that offensive conduct, um, enter vehicle without consent, violent disorder fall under the Summary Offences Act. The Crimes Act, if I'm thinking about the offences that carry a maximum of two years, I think that there is, there are a couple of violent offences like assault or there's an unlawfully caused grievous bodily harm, I recall, that existed and I think it carries two years. And my recollection is that those summary offences are the offences that carry two years or less. Now, I know you won't have the precise statistic for this, but what proportion of the matters that come before you would be summary matters as opposed to a form of indictable offence? Uh, I would think we are looking at many less summary offences than indictable offences, in part because the police are diverting those less serious offences well, from the court. Yeah. If yeah, Our primary offences will be shoplifting, assault, assault occasioning actual bodily harm, damage and destroy property, intimidation, breach AVO, break, enter and steal, robbery um, and sexual intercourse without consent. You often hear of the, as it were, the old days when the police would give little Johnny uh, a bit of a warning and send him on his way. Is it right to think that that's effectively still happening, although now uh, provided by statute uh, and the police empowered to, to give warnings and, as it were, send little Johnny on his way, hopefully to behave properly thereafter? Is that, is that the way we should look at it? Well, yeah, perhaps to some extent. It's not a bad way of looking at it. I think um, that in smaller communities, policing was part of the community's response to this very difficult life stage. And police might know some of the kids and then be able to deal with them in a particular way and use the relationship the kid had with their family or their church or their teachers to try and encourage the child to display better behaviour. This is a way of standardising it. And I think there are vastly different referral rates across different police commands. And... So, yes, it does formalise a way of saying you're in a difficult life stage. It doesn't mean that this is because you've got a broken character. It means that you needed to learn the difference between right and wrong and that you're personally responsible for your actions and we want to work with you on understanding that to help you remain in the community. Um, I think that's what it rec has was intended to recognise and that's what it does recognise. And I take it from your perspective, it has some pretty good results. Yeah, and statistically, and I can have a look at that too, it does have very good results. The kids who get a caution are much less likely to re-offend than the kids who come straight to court. Mm. And I've, I've thought about it because I think adolescence is a really difficult stage of life and we have so many levers to motivate good behaviour. So poor behaviour starts to show up at school or at home and normally parents will say, if you keep doing that, we'll tell your teachers. And if it continues, then school and parents use the police as a threat. And I think we want the, each of these stages to really maximise the threat aspect of trying to encourage the child to take responsibility and make some changes themselves. So the Young Offenders Act prevents a kid from going into custody straight away and then being separated from their family and scared and alone and depressed and anxious. And I assume avoids a criminal record. And avoids a criminal record. It just means that you're really maximising their opportunities to say, okay, I've strayed and I'll fix it, rather than just bringing them straight into court to say, well, now we're going to deal with you in a punitive way. Yeah. Um, well, then, assuming that the child that's come to the court before you or one of your colleagues can't be dealt with under the Young Offenders Act by reason of the nature of their offence or uh, other offences they may have committed, 
what are the uh, remedies, as it were, what are the approaches that uh, your court can take to dealing with such a child? We have a range of different sentencing options under the Children Criminal Proceedings Act and we are able to effectively dismiss a matter with a type of caution where we record that something's happened and we take no further action. So again, no criminal record? Well, for a child under 16, we can't impose a criminal conviction and for right. a child between the ages of 16 and 18, we can we have a discretionary option to record a conviction or not. There's a presumption that will operate in favour of the child between 10 and 14, mm -hmm. um, but you then say at up until the age of 16, your court cannot impose a conviction? We can impose a penalty without a conviction. Does that apply only to an offence which would fall within the summary jurisdiction? No. So oh, within, so, sorry, a summary or an indictable offence. So if a 15-year-old came in on a robbery in company, hmm. I could sentence that child to a 12-month probation order without a criminal conviction. I could give them a community service order without a criminal conviction. Right. So uh, up to the age of 16, you have a capacity to impose effectively a, a form of sentence. Exactly. Um, but no, no conviction would be recorded. Even a control order without conviction. Right. And then yeah. 16 to 18, it's discretionary. Do we determine that we will impose a conviction? And even if a conviction's imposed under the Criminal Records Act, I believe it's spent within three years unless they re-offend in that 18 to 21-year-old age bracket. And what is it that motivates one of you or your colleagues to uh, record a conviction as opposed to not recording a conviction? Uh, this is going to be one of those areas where people exercise their discretion differently and it might depend on what they believe, what impact they believe the conviction might have on the child's prospects of rehabilitation. So if a conviction were to interrupt a child's passage towards employment or travel or travel as it relates to employment, then they might be more likely not to impose a conviction. Um, if there is something that is of such seriousness or there's something particular about the child that makes them believe that it's really not going to make an enormous amount of difference to their future, they might determine that it's more appropriate in the interests of community protection that a conviction be imposed or recognition of harm to the victim or denunciation. And if you're dealing with someone who is past 18 years of age at the time that they're brought before the court, but the offence was committed before they're 18, is the position the same? I believe so, but I feel like I should check the law before we do anything with it. But I think we're still imposing a sentence within our sentencing regime, mm. and within that there are limits on being supervised by community corrections when they're over the age of 18. A children's community service order can only be imposed for youth justice to supervise it. There are these little traps that come up. What are the range of penalties um, that you can impose on a child that comes before the court? Okay. So the range of penalties that we can impose, we can deal with at what we call a 33-1A, which is no conviction, the matter's dismissed, proven but dismissed. We can put a child on a no conviction bond under 33-1A2. That's so effectively a good behaviour bond. It's effectively a good behaviour bond with no conviction. But in the children's court, because a conviction's discretionary, yeah. it's just really indicating on the sentencing hierarchy, it's at the lower end. We can then impose a good behaviour bond under Section 33-1B, and the mm. bonds can only be imposed for up to two years. Um, that we can defer sentence and make a determination down the track, like a Griffiths remand of let's see whether the child can engage better in educational programs or therapy and we'll keep an eye on them. 
We can impose fines, and I think the fine cap is about $1,000. It might have just gone up to 1100 but we have to take into account the child's capacity to pay. When the court uh, is considering whether or not to impose a good behaviour bond or a juvenile probation order, I assume you have a range of conditions that you might decide to impose upon the child. Can you tell us what those conditions might be? Yeah. Every bond will have a condition that a child has to be of good behaviour. So if they commit an offence during the time that, or the duration of the bond, they'll come back before the court and be re-sentenced for the offence they're placed on a bond for. And we ask them to let us know if their address changes so we can find them. It would be fairly standard for us to put youth justice supervision in place as a condition of a bond, um, where youth justice do an exceptional job of identifying what the particular needs of a child are to try and reduce their offending. So as a starting point, they might get their identification, but they might look at employ employability factors or family supports to try and help the child do other things um, and or to re-engage in school. And they've got some cultural programs to help children better become part of their identity or to connect into their cultural identity. Um, sometimes there might be other conditions that we put in place and occasionally they might be mental health conditions um, there for treatment. There, there may sometimes be some conditions that people would use about attending school or not going to certain places. We've got the capacity to put non-association and place restriction conditions in place as an additional order to a bond. But generally, I would hope that on any condition that we're imposing on a child, we're only doing what's necessary to reduce the risk of reoffending, because we're not trying to extend the range of matters that will have them back before the court. We're having, we're hoping that we can come up with a solution that stops them from getting into trouble again and gives them the support they need to do that. So do we understand that you can impose the same range of conditions in relation to a good behaviour bond? as you can impose in relation to a probation order? Yes, the same. So, uh, and that extends, I think, to um, confining the child to not go to certain premises. Yes, if we put a place restriction order in place, it, you can do that for the bonds or the probation. And what might motivate you to impose a restriction like that on a child? What, what sort of problems? Is that designed to address? Well, as a person who sat for a while in a regional area, you become very familiar with some young people and their groups of friends and the places that they like to visit. Oh. And I could identify some bus stations or skate parks where groups of young people would congregate and that quite serious crimes would frequently occur. So that when you have a person that you've seen often and you know that they're always committing crimes with the same bunch of people and that they're often committing them in the same place, that you might impose something to try and break that cycle of those affrays that occur at skate parks. or. So you can confine where they might go. Can you also confine the people they might mix with? Yes, we can. We can put a non-association order in place. Um, we tend to do that for a limited term, so we might say that you're not allowed to see Jack for six or 12 months, and if you see him, you've got to go the other way. So it's a sentencing alternative. There, there are other ways that those orders can be in place through something like an apprehended violence order, but this is more about breaking up friendships than it is trying to control risk within a friendship. And tell me, uh, is it successful? It successfully brings children back before the court. <laughs> um, to some extent, I think there's 
it's a very difficult life stage and there's a level of criminality that has already occurred before we would even consider putting a non-association or place restriction in place. So that young person is already comfortable breaching some rules. He's rebelling to some, yeah. to some degree. And yeah. sometimes we just give them something else to rebel against and we yes. make that relationship more exciting. Yeah. And if they do rebel again and come back before you, what, what, what happens then? I hope that we are very focused on outcomes where rather than coming down hard on them, we might understand where that behaviour comes from and try and help them to make a choice to do things differently because they would like to avoid being locked up. Um, so, yes, that we'd have the opportunity on the breach to redo a sentence, particularly if they breach a bond or probation, we, could, we will redo a sentence. But sometimes we might look at it and realise that the offence that they were sentenced for happened some time ago, that they have made some significant gains and that we want to recognise that actually they're integrated quite well in the community at the point they come back before us, that they're on the path to become the people that we as a community need them to be and we don't want to disrupt what is a positive path by taking some action because they were disobedient of an order that we'd made. And you say you, you have the option, though, to re-sentence. What would that involve at that point? Well, if a child comes before us on a breach of a good behaviour bond or probation, say that um, a child had been charged with a robbery in company, it carries 20 years in jail, it was the first time they'd come before us and we made a determination that they should be on a probation order for 12 months. If they committed a shoplifting nine months in and they came back before the court, we would then relist the robbery in company and we would look at giving them another sentence for the robbery in company. So then we'd have to say, well, we can take no action and we can leave the next three months for the probation order before it finalises. We can give them, a, we can re-sentence them and give them a further longer probation. We can give them a community service order. We can give them a control order. So well, it just come, gives us another come, turn. Let's come to those two because we've so far progressed from good behaviour bond, fine, through to juvenile probation order. But now I think things get more serious when we go to look firstly at children's community service orders. What do they involve? Uh, a children's community service order we can only impose when we're of the view that it is as a direct alternative to a sentence of imprisonment. So it's a very serious order. About 40% of a children's community service order could be programs like therapeutic interventions. And there are some limits depending on an age of how many hours we can order a young person to serve. But we can order a person to perform community service. We can do that as part of a bond or probation as well, that it can be in addition to one of those broader supervisory orders. And a young person would then be supervised by youth justice to go and do a number of hours working in the community. And that might be a range of different things, lawn mowing, cleaning, graffiti. Um, and if they breach that order, do they come back again before the court for the, with the prospect of resentencing? They sure do. And if they breach that order, I think we must re-sentence. Um, we might give them more opportunities to do it, but we'll have kids who will order to perform 200 hours of community service. That is where you've made a very difficult decision that it might be something they should be locked up for, but you want to give them the opportunity to remain in the community. And some kids don't do an hour of that. And when that comes back before the court, you, yeah, would, no you don't have much alternative. Yeah. You can't then scale it back and say, I mean, subject to particular circumstances, but you'd generally be saying, look, this was an option for you to show that you didn't need to be locked up and you didn't you exercise can't. that option. Yeah. Now, then you can turn to a suspended control order, is that right? That's right. Now, what does that involve? 
a suspended control order is a determination that it would be wholly inappropriate to do anything other than impose a sentence of control and then a determination of how long that sentence should be. So say the robbering company, you might decide, okay, this person should get 12 months in custody. So and just, then, just so we understand, the word control actually means jail. In, in jail. Jail. Yeah. yeah, it's juvenile detention. It's yeah. Yeah, being subject to the control of the minister. So we then say, all right, we're sending them to jail for 12 months. But for various reasons, we might decide to suspend that. And that is you have to stay out of trouble for 12 so months. it's a suspended sentence. It's a suspended sentence. It means automatically in yes. into jail. Is that how that operates? It, it has picked up on the old local court law yeah. or the old um, adult sentencing law that if a suspended sentence is imposed and there's a breach that's not trivial, that then the court would impose a control order. The a full-time sentence of imprisonment, but it's called control. It means the same thing, that they'd go into a juvenile detention centre. There are difficulties with these because we're still caught by some of the adult sentencing caps so that if a sentence is six months or less, it must be served full-time. If a sentence is six to months to two years, we can set a non-parole period so that if a child is given a four-month suspended sentence and breaches it, they have to go in for four months. If they're given an 18-month suspended sentence and breach it, they might go in for two months and then spend 16 months in the community on parole. So there's a lot of flexibility in how a parole order is managed within the Children's Court because a breach of parole comes before the Children's Court Parole Authority. And again, the focus is different from the focus for adults in how do we help them integrate in the community and parole and probation give some supports by way of supervision to help that child become a more positive member of the community and we're continually using that lever of imprisonment to motivate better behaviour from them rather than just locking them up and teaching them how to live in a jail because we don't want 10 to 18 year olds only to know how to live in jails we want to teach them how to live in the community. Um. Are many juvenile control orders imposed by the court in the course of any year? Is it frequent? It's not infrequent um, that over the last few years we proudly have brought down the numbers of juveniles in detention and there have been, I think, a couple of juvenile detention centres that have closed because the numbers have come down significantly. Um, that there is still an enormous over-representation of young Aboriginal offenders in custody. And I think at the moment there would be 200 to 240-ish young people in custody in New South Wales, and I think about 80% of them will be on remand, whereas it used to be about 65% were on remand. Um, but, yes, there are times when sentencing considerations mean that a child must be removed from the community and placed into custody. Now, we talked earlier about approaches which the court can take short of bringing a charge uh, effectively the diversion option. There's another alternative, as I understand it, which is referred to as a youth justice conference. Can you just tell us a little bit about what that is? So the youth justice conferences, I'm believe were developed now over 20 years ago and it is a restorative conferencing process that happens in a number of jurisdictions um, by way of legislation that comes through the Young Offenders Act and that's where I was saying the police can divert to a youth justice conference as can the court. 
if a child comes before the court and they admit an offence, we'll then adjourn it for six or eight weeks for them to go and do the conference. And they don't need to come back to court. If they go to the conference and they come up with a plan and they complete the outcome plan... Well, let's just pause for a moment. Yeah. They go to the conference. Who will be at that conference? A youth justice conference will be attended by a conference coordinator who's organised by youth justice. There would be a child and the support person for the child. Ideally, there'll be a victim or a representative of victim, and there might be some member of a community organisation or the PCYC or something that assists in identifying what the best parts of an outcome plan might be, an outcome plan. They will be diverse. They'll often include a letter of apology. They might include a clean-up order that sometimes they'll include going and doing some sessions at the PCYC. Um, I always ask a young person to invest some of themselves in an outcome plan. So sometimes there's a rap or there's a video about peaceful forms of protest. Um, there was a young Aboriginal boy that created a wellness garden at the school that he'd damaged when he'd gone in on a weekend for an area for other stressed young people to spend time in when they were feeling upset at school. Um, there, there was some opportunistic mother who got her child to sign up to emptying the dishwasher three times a week and walking the dog. That's not normally what we'd seen in outcome plan, but obviously that was a strong advocate mother who was in attendance. Um, but I, I really, really like youth justice conferences. In the second reading speech when they brought the bill through, there was a comment that they exist for serious offending. And I use them for serious offending because there is an alternative to a bond. And... I think people should try to be good anyway. So I think that the Youth Justice Conference is a very good way for a young person to talk about what caused them to offend and to hear about the impact of their offending on someone else and to apologise and make amends. And I think that that is a really useful process in helping them to not re-offend because they've understood the consequences better than they would if we just talked to them at court. So the person controlling this conference seeks to have the young offender... Uh, discuss their motivations and their capacity to change the way they've been behaving. What role does the, as it were, the victim have to play in, in this conference? I understand that a convener would speak to the young person and the victim separately prior to the conference and then the victim would be given the opportunity to express the impact of the crime on the victim and but the benefit of them is that victim satisfaction is much greater than through an ordinary criminal justice process. So there are, there's been research from other jurisdictions where a number of quite serious offences are dealt with by way of restorative conferencing. And I think the research had shown that victims wanted acknowledgement that something had happened to them um, and they wanted a person to indicate that they wouldn't do it to anyone else. And they didn't necessarily always want an offender to be locked up. They just wanted to make sure that they'd been heard and the harm had been recognised. Do victims have a capacity to say what they would like to see happen to the child? I think it would depend on the convener. And mm. I think that sometimes there will be that roundtable conversation um, and sometimes the victim won't be able to contribute anything of use or it might not aid the conferencing process for them to contribute. But and do the conferences always end up at least at that point in time, with a resolution as to the child's future behaviour? Or does some of them not work? Some of them come back to court and say the young person didn't attend or didn't contribute, um, that certainly we're looking at a life stage that has some poor attitudes and that's a very confronting process. And there are 
certainly occasions where people have gone to conferences and then continued to offend. So we're not there will be some people who learn from those early diversionary lessons and they never come back before the court and there'll be others who are given opportunities but they continue to engage in those types of behaviours and come back before the court. And there are a whole range of reasons for that and I, I would like people to always consider that many of the offenders in the children's court could also be looked at as victims, that their life experiences have been adverse, many from when they were babies and they, there's not been good role modelling and they've been exposed to trauma and abuse and sometimes they're behaving as they have seen. And I think we hope to treat them with some empathy and consideration and opportunity rather than to look at these people who are acting out the life that they've known and then to lock them up for that because I'm not entirely sure it's all their fault. And again, to the numbers, how many youth justice conferences would we expect to see held in a, in a year in the state? I think there would be hundreds. Hundreds. But because the police are referring them and we're referring them, there are hundreds. Yeah. Uh, and how many of them would fail? How many would come back to the court? Uh, less than 10%. Right. Mm. So it's a fairly productive way of going about helping young people onto the right path. Yeah, I think it's a really effective way of addressing those principles of sentencing, but doing it in a way that gives a young person some autonomy and opportunity to make the changes themselves. Now, I think that um, the court has been given by the legislation some overarching principles that you're required to apply uh, when you look at how to deal with young offenders. Uh, and. Uh, I think they're fairly strong in the way that uh, they guide the course work. Can you just talk to us a little bit about what they involve? Yes. So the Children Criminal Proceedings Act has some guiding principles and they come in under Section 6 um, and they talk about the children have rights and freedoms before the law equal to those enjoyed by adults, in particular a right to be heard and a right to be participate in the process that lead to decisions that affect them. Children bear responsibility for their actions, but because of their state of dependency and immaturity, require guidance and assistance. It's desirable to allow the education or employment of a child to proceed without interruption. It's desirable, where possible, to allow a child to reside in their home. That a penalty imposed on a child shouldn't be greater than that imposed on an adult for an offence of the same kind. And it's desirable that children who commit offences be assisted with their reintegration into the community. There's also... Um, it's desirable for children who commit offences to accept responsibility for their actions and make reparation where possible. And it's that subject to the other principles, consideration should be given to the effect of any crime on the victim. And I've been talking to one of my colleagues recently about this because we apply adult sentencing law in Section 3, capital A, in making a determination about what factors to consider when sentencing. So we don't have specific sentencing principles for children that this sets up the guiding framework for the children's court in recognising the difficulty of adolescence and it helps us put a focus on rehabilitation that might be greater than if we we're sentencing an adult but that we are still applying section 3 capital A of the Crime Sentencing Procedure Act as to the purposes of sentencing and perhaps there's scope to look at whether or not those principles of sentencing are as applicable to children as they are to adults. I think there's been some guidance also from some common law decisions mm. that have been made over the years to try and focus particularly on children. Yes, that's right. Finally today, can we just 
have a chat about the Youth Koori Court and how that operates in relation to young people. The Youth Koori Court was established, I think it started in Parramatta some years ago with Magistrate Sue Duncombe and the aim being to provide some support to young Aboriginal offenders in the hopes that we could reduce the risk of incarceration and to help gain better outcomes for them. I think there was a recommendation also that came from the Sentencing Council in 2010 which suggested there should be a a youth Koori court in New South Wales. So it must have been an accumulation of factors. That a combination it. of factors. It wasn't resourced initially and it wasn't resourced for the first few years. So I think that the start of it had been identifying what was happening in other jurisdictions and the Victorians have got some really good initiatives in working with Aboriginal people and trying to bring some of those initiatives in to work with different stakeholders within youth justice and the courts to have them collaborate effectively to provide some support to children so that where children have entered a plea of guilty and identify as Aboriginal or Torres Strait Islander, they can then be referred to the Youth Curry Court to be assessed as to whether they're suitable to engage with those wraparound supports that work with them. And their sentencing is deferred while they engage with the supports, and that might be getting confirmation of Aboriginality, getting identification documentation, lining up some of the white cards for employment or getting back into school, sorting out housing, reconnecting with family, um, sport, youth workers, any of those sorts of things. And I think generally there would be children in the youth Koori court for many months um, while people are working with them to identify what their goals are and try and help them affect those goals. So a young Aboriginal child um, commits some sort of offence and they're diverted then, if possible, are they, to the Koori Court, is that? Yeah, that's right. That's the first step. Yeah, that's right. Um, that assumes that the police haven't been able to deal with the child uh, at the police station, as it were, that's necessary to come to the court. And then they'll be diverted to a Koori Court rather than a normal court. Is that? Yeah. And that's right. Only at Parramatta and Surrey Hills at the moment, and only after so a plea of guilty. A country Aboriginal child doesn't have access to a Koori Court. Does not have access, no. And those two locations take children from how far afield? I think they try and be quite flexible and it is about where geographically the offence occurred and then whether the child can engage with the supports in that feeder area. So so they're taken into the Koori Court in that area and they're then given the support uh, that you indicated. What happens after that? I, I think the aim is to try and reduce them getting a the number of people who get a control order and the length of control orders so that it would be less likely for a young person who's been through the Koori Court to end up with a control order if they've been able to show that they've reduced their drug use or they've become drug-free and they've got stable housing and they've engaged with employment or they're back at school. So Um, they're effectively brought into the court system, but, but at that point in time they're given the opportunity to demonstrate that they are capable of changing their behaviour and working effectively in school or in the community otherwise. That's right. And the support mechanisms that come from family in the Koori Court, are they identified as well? There's there's an elder who sits with the magistrate in Youth Koori Court and they have been phenomenal and they work really closely with the supports. If a young person wanted to bring a family member, they could. Um, I 
was in the youth career court this morning and saw two children and neither of them came with family members, but unfortunately they were both young people in care. Um, but it is there is a much more flexible engagement in a conversational style of people talking about what the young person's aspirations are, what they've been doing to achieve them, really celebrating their successes and sometimes they'll be applauded for the things that they've managed to achieve in an adjournment period that everyone will be identifying what the kid needs to do before the next court date and then celebrating when that occurs. So it's really... And if the child then fails at any of those points along the way, does the court then turn to sentence the child uh, in, in the conventional way? Yes, so they can fail because they disengage or they can fail because they re-offend. Mm. And then the Youth Curry Court generally would sentence them, but sometimes they'll be sentenced by someone else. And how long could the process of, as it were, supervision be before the court either discharges the child altogether or regrettably has to sentence? The Griffiths remand, that section 33, is a 12-month process of assessing rehabilitation. And then if in that period of time the court determines that the child is wants a community-based order, they've got the capacity to keep them under youth justice supervision for a couple of years under the bond or probation. But the intense period of intervention with the Youth Career Court should fall within right. that 12-month count. Months. Yeah. Ellen, thank you very much for coming and talking to us today. The work that you do is of immense importance to everyone in New South Wales. And we're very pleased to hear from you as to how you go about it. And we wish you the very best in your future endeavours. Yeah, thank you. You have been listening to Judge Ellen Skinner, the President of the New South Wales Children's Court. This podcast, Sentencing Explained, is brought to you by the New South Wales Sentencing Council. The teacher's guide to the podcast and further information about the council is available on the Sentencing Council's website. I'm Peter McClellan. Thank you for listening.